Heavenly Father, how good it is to be in your presence. What a blessing it is to sing your praise. God, even though there's so much going on in our lives outside of here, I pray that we can draw all of our attention to you. That we can hear your voice. And we can see what you have for us. God, we love you. In your name I pray. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and you'll find it in the Bible under your seat on page 809. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Well, we're back for a second helping of the Beatitudes. We looked at the first four last week, and we're going to continue um, here in a few minutes with the second four. But before I do that, I want to, I want to give a little more context or background for helping us understand these eight blessings that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. And I think Getting this foundation underneath us will help us understand the sermon better and I think really the rest of Matthew. You probably remember in chapter 4 of Matthew that Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. What the prophets had foretold, what Israel was looking for and longing for for centuries was now beginning. The king was here. The kingdom was near, it was at hand, it was invading earth. The coming of Jesus was the dawning of a new age. 
And the rain and the blessing of God was now present on the earth in a way that it had not previously been for who knows how long, maybe even Eden. And one of the ways that Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises God made about Israel and to Israel is as the new Moses. And so here in chapter 5, as we mentioned last week, Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses went up on a mountain. Not to receive the law, but to give a law. He delivers what many have called his kingdom manifesto. The constitution of the new kingdom. A new law or a new covenant. And it's here that we need to stop and ask a very important question What about this new law or this new covenant is new? What's different? And for many, the answer is it's harder. And part of the reason for this is found later on in Matthew chapter 5. First in verse 20, where Jesus says that to get into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees a group that prided themselves in their righteousness, who built their lives around the pursuit of keeping God's law. And then a second reason, just from chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, another reason some think that the new covenant is harder is found in verse 48, where Jesus says, you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You've got to admit that sounds pretty hard, Right? I remember being told in high school by one of my high school youth leaders that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was raising the bar. And that what was new about the new covenant was that he was not concerned with just external keeping or conformity to the rules, like thou shalt not murder, but he was looking for a changed heart. Thou shalt not get angry, which for me, seemed much, much harder, if not downright impossible. Which has led some to believe that the major purpose of the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Jesus in general is to show us our utter inability to obey God and therefore push us to grace or drive us to Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. And certainly, I think that's an aspect of what goes on here and it does function that way. But we need to ask, why did Jesus have to do that? We have 39 books in the Old Testament that just continually pile up the evidence that we are incapable of obeying God. Wasn't the Old Covenant already impossible, right? Wasn't the bar already too high? Absolutely. The promise of the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of heaven was good news, not because God was raising the bar, but because God in sending the king and in bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth was going to make his followers into people who obeyed him from their heart. What's new about the new covenant and the kingdom of heaven is that God changes us. He makes us into a new kind of people. And so to think of salvation as merely forgiveness of sin misses the mark. Salvation in Christ 
And participation in the kingdom means, to borrow the language of Paul from 2 Corinthians 5.17, it means that we're a new creation. The old us has passed. The new us with a new heart has come. And to this new creation people of God, The Sermon on the Mount is not some out-of-reach proclamation simply to drive us to grace and then to guilt, right? I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is the glorious blueprint for life in the kingdom that we all long for. It's not so much law as it is actually gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is good news, for the people of God. And it's not being preached here to outsiders, though certainly outsiders are listening in. The goal of the sermon isn't to convince or convict them to come in, although it will have that effect as well. But it's given to people who are already in. People who are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so the Beatitudes then are not a list of optional traits. It's not a smorgasbord of of Christian qualities that we can kind of look at and go, I'd like to have that one or that seems to be something I I could pull off. But each one is something every Christian should should have and should show. Something that's the result of the new thing that God is doing with this new covenant. And these Beatitudes, I think, function in two ways. First, they, they're a proclamation of what Christ has already done for us in Christ. And in that way, they bring comfort. They bring encouragement. They, they strengthen us in our walk with God. And second, they provide a guide for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. The Beatitudes describe who we are already And who we should strive to be. Who we are in Christ right now. And who we should strive to become. I haven't worked it all out. But I think that these eight Beatitudes serve. Do you ever buy like a computer or something. And you open up and it's like here's your quick guide to using your new electronic instrument and it's a little short one and then the bigger manual is over here off to the side I'm not a manual reader so if I'm going to read something it's usually the quick guide right I feel like these eight beatitudes are kind of that quick guide to the Christian life they don't give us everything we need or everything we want they're intentionally short and memorable But they function as a sort of key to everything else that's going on, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. With that in mind, let's kind of dive into this, and let's just begin by doing a brief review of what we saw last week. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's, It's this kind of proclamation of utter dependence on God for everything. It's a humble, honest understanding of of who we are apart from Christ. We're the poor, we're the powerless, we're the needy, we're the thieves, the beggars. It's an acknowledgement 
that what God has done for us makes all the difference for us. And so we are constantly looking to Jesus for strength, for help, for encouragement, for everything. To mourn here is a spiritual mourning that means we are grieved by our own sin against the goodness of God. And and we're grieving over the damage, the pain that our sin has produced. But it doesn't stop just with this kind of personalized individual grief over sin. But it, it moves on out, extends to every sin committed against the goodness of God. And the terrible pain as we look around the world that rejection of God and His ways is brought to the world. So we're poor in spirit, we mourn over sin, and we're to be meek. We're to have a right estimation of who we are in relation to God, in relation to others. And this meekness rejects the world's understanding of how power works, what it means to be strong, so that we are willing to suffer We're willing to become like children, willing to become servants for the kingdom. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think, is to desire to be perfect as God the Father is perfect and to see that hunger spread to the whole world. Which then brings us to number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, some have sought to divide the Beatitudes into two categories. The first four reflecting our attitude toward God and our relationship with Him, and the second four our attitude toward other people and our relationship with them. I'm not sure if it's that clean of a dividing line, and some seem to go both way and others just seem odd. But what's clear here is that there's no room for some kind of privatized, Hermity, is that a word? I don't think it is, but it sounds good. A hermity kind of faith, me and God kind of a faith. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of this new covenant, means you're a part of a new kingdom with people. It means you're involved in the lives of other people for good, and that engagement has a cost. It gets messy, right? And that comes into play here with mercy. So let's just define this mercy as compassion for people in need that leads to action. Compassion for people in need that leads to action. And this starts with people we know, people we love or should love. It starts with people in the church, for married couples. It starts with us. We shouldn't refuse to extend mercy to our spouses, to our children. We shouldn't refuse to give them compassion. And yet, how many hold grudges just in that first layer of relationship? How many seek to make life miserable for the people around them? How many people leave churches offended or hurt over petty things, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to work it out? We need greater compassion for one another. We need a compassion, though, that just doesn't say, oh, man, I feel for you. But the point here is that this compassion compels us or moves us to some kind of action. And I say action because it it isn't enough simply to feel. We must act. 
And this mercy goes way beyond the people in our circles. People we know and should love. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is just an excellent example of this. I think that God in His providence will bring people across our path that don't necessarily belong there, that we don't necessarily relate to, and yet there they are. I mean, the ones who should have helped the man who was robbed and left for dead didn't. But the man who shouldn't have helped him, who was in a sense his enemy, did. And that's a perfect example of what's going on here. Jesus will go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, you need to love your enemies. You need to do good for those who persecute you and treat you poorly. This illustrates the kind of mercy that is to flow in the kingdom of God. Like our Father in heaven who causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, we are to give mercy to our fellow believers and to the unbelieving world around us. We show mercy even to those who don't deserve it according to worldly standards. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who intentionally use us. We're to get involved in doing good and showing mercy to people don't like. And we'll probably be taken advantage of at some point. That's okay. We don't do it to gain honor. We're not doing this to impress people. We're not doing this to get on the good side of the world. We do it because we want to reflect the nature of God. And we do it because we know how it feels to receive mercy and And here I think we begin to see a different way that these Beatitudes work as we're trying to figure out what it means. The blessing that comes kind of informs what's going on. You see, it tells us here that by showing mercy, we receive mercy. And this doesn't mean somehow we earn God's mercy by giving mercy. But it's that many of the blessings promised have already been received. The kingdom is already here. It has been for 2,000 years. And so even that first promise, you shall receive the kingdom, we've already received it in some way. Not completely. But we've also been comforted. We've also been satisfied. We are even now sons of God whose eyes have been opened to see the truth about Jesus. Not fully, through a glass dimly, but we've seen him. And with mercy, when we understand our poverty of spirit, we can't help but sense God's mercy towards us, right? And that spills over. The people who who clearly don't deserve mercy should be the first people to give that same mercy away. So mercy is compassion for people in need that leads us to action. And I think as we move through the sermon... In the book of Matthew, we're going to see that over and over again. Life in the kingdom is a call to live a certain way. And it's going to be demonstrated most notably in the life of Jesus, whose mercy for sinners eventually will lead him to die to save them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now certainly that word pure stands out, right? I mean, we've already stated that what's new about the new kingdom or the new covenant is that God gives us a new heart that beats for him, that's eager to do his will. 
And one of the main Old Testament passages on this comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Another background passage for this beatitude is Psalm 24, which asks, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now, we might think of purity of heart as an inner moral rightness. And and clearly that's one of the key things the Pharisees were missing, right? They were focused on the externals, on ceremonial washings of keeping certain rules. And Jesus is concerned more with what's going on in the inside. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They're trying to dress up a dead faith and make it look alive. But I think if we simply define this as an inner moral purity, we might get off track and start focusing on ourselves, and probably we'd end up focusing on how far we fall short. We'd end up with guilt trips, right? And while I do think Jesus wants us to be serious and thoughtful about how we live and about pursuing purity, I think he wants us to focus on the right thing. And so the blessing of a pure heart gives us a better understanding of what is promised here. So again, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. One of the things that you notice about ancient Israel is they were double-minded. They worshipped the God of Abraham. They worshipped Yahweh. And, well, they also worshipped the idols of the other nations around them. Their hearts were divided. And so to be pure in heart is to be undivided in our devotion to Jesus. To be pure in heart is to have one thing in our sights, Jesus. Our part in cultivating and maintaining this purity is primarily to look on Jesus, to see him. And to fight against the idols that often build up in our hearts and try and knock him over. Move him out of his place. Try to block our view of him. One easy question that gets at the heart of this is, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? What do you see? What's driving you, motivating you? Is it Jesus or... And this purity of heart is not merely a private affair between me and God, but it spills out into all of life. The pure in heart desires complete openness and sincerity in relating to others. Remember how Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, right? Well, they were trying to make people believe they were different than they really were. They were trying to get people to believe something that wasn't true. The pure in heart seek to be completely sincere. No masks, no hiding, no lies. 
But this is not a kind of brazen honesty that says, just take me as I am, love it or leave it, I don't care, this is me. No. No, this is a meek, sincere, humble honesty that understands that they are already pure in Christ, even as they seek greater purity. And so their confession, their sincerity is meant to promote and push them further and further along in their growth and godliness. Which brings us to number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I think people want peace, but I'm not convinced. You know what I mean? I think there's something about peace that we all really want, and then I look around and... I think if people do want peace, they want it on their terms. And because of that, we live in a world of constant conflict. Some of it is minor, the social media kind of conflict that that somehow becomes big in politics these days, right? Some of it's minor, some of it's minor that turns into major. Lots of it is personal, relational, husband, wife, father, daughter, Brother to brother. Some of it, a lot of it, is spreads across communities. Some of it runs between different classes and different racial groups. Some of it is brutal and unthinkable, such as the ethnic cleansing that's happening in Myanmar right now. The call to peacemaking here is grounded once again in the blessing Peacemakers shall be called the sons of God. Every kid who's ever attended a family reunion, right, has had some strange, unknown relative walk up and say something like, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And you're like, and what's that mean, right? But now as you get older, you realize, hey, you look a lot like your dad. That's what it really means. That's what's happening here. When we seek peace, we image God. It's a characteristic of God's people to seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 34, 14. I think it's pretty cool that our Heavenly Father is all about peace. He is a God of peace. That doesn't mean He won't make war on evil and injustice. He absolutely will but only after they have resisted his incredible overtures for peace. Paul writes in Colossians 1 that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus so that through Jesus he could reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, and here's how he did it, by making peace through his Blood shed on the cross. God is so committed to peace that he sent his only son into the world to die. To make peace and reconciliation possible. To bring us back to him. And from this we see that peacemaking is different from being peaceable or compliant Peacemakers seek reconciliation in their lives. They fight for it. They seek reconciliation in their communities. 
They should fight for it. I'm not sure how that looks personally. I, I want to learn. They seek peace in their world, often at personal cost and risk. So this is an active attempt to make peace by seeking reconciliation. Sometimes with your own enemies. Do any of you have enemies? Possibly, right? Uh, relatives that feel like enemies? Children that feel like enemies, maybe. Seeking reconciliation. Seeking then to bring together not those who we have difficulties with, but also seeking to bring others together who are estranged from one another. And I think to some extent this is a call to evangelism. It seems weird, but I think that if we're trying to bring about peace, the greatest peace anyone can experience is peace between themselves and God, right? And that's what the gospel is. It says, look, God has come reconciling himself to the world through the death of Christ. And if you turn to Christ and follow him, you will know and feel and experience the kingdom, the love of God, the blessing of God. And so this call to evangelism seeks to, this call to peacemaking seeks to evangelize or spread peace between God and man to the world around us, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to everyone who has not turned to Christ. And I think what starts to become clearer here is that following Jesus is not a solitary private affair. Just been thinking about this. No true disciple will say, as a couple of my uncles used to say when they were asked about their faith, that's between me and God, and walk away. No, no true disciple would think that way. And so as we image God in seeking peace and reconciliation in the world, there's a good chance that we're going to be persecuted. Our work of peace will often bring us into conflict. I think that's why Jesus said, I, at one point I'm, I'm coming to bring peace, and at another point I, I'm bringing a sword. I'm driving a wedge between families. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. And then finally, persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we move through the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to start to make sense that that following Jesus throws us into a group of people, a new kingdom, a very distinct group of people who at some point or another find themselves at odds with the world around them. While Jesus came for peace, he knew that his coming would cause the kingdoms of this world to revolt, that it would incite a war. The kingdom of God is in in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. So persecution in some way or another, and even as I say this, I feel hypocritical, but In some way or another, persecution is the true badge of discipleship. And then you'll hear me now starting to backpedal after that statement here, you know. I don't think it means that we go out looking for a fight or something like that, or that we go looking for persecution. 
or even that we should feel guilty or deprived or somehow in the wrong when it doesn't happen, I think we should focus on the other seven. And I think as we focus on the other seven, probably number eight will come into view. But I would say this, if God gives us peace and prosperity, and there are places where Paul says, pray that you can live in peace, right? It's not a bad thing to, be, to have peace. If God gives us peace and prosperity, then we receive it with careful joy. Careful because prosperity can be a snare, and it often exposes a weak faith. If he gives us persecution and hardship, we should receive that as well with a careful joy. And I say careful here because persecution often breaks or severs weak faith. In everything we do, we should seek to live as children of God. We should seek to establish his kingdom more and more in our own hearts and then seek to establish his kingdom more and more in our communities. We could think of it like our hearts, our community groups, our church, our neighborhoods, and on and on. So as I wrap this up, I want to revisit the idea that these Beatitudes define who we already are in Christ and who we should strive to become. God in his wisdom has chosen to involve us in the process of becoming kingdom people. He gives us a new heart and yet he shapes us and he forms us through a a variety of means. He shapes us through the preaching of God's word. He shapes us through teaching, right? I mean, think about it. After he tells the disciples... This is who you are. You are the blessed of God. Then he goes on for quite a bit, giving them concrete examples of what it looks like. For this blessed faith to be lived. The transformation is not from the outside in. It is true that God accomplishes it for us, but he he plants a new heart in us like he plants a seed and he uses all kinds of means fellowship Bible reading prayer, trials difficulties, temptations friendships he uses all kinds of means to to bring that heart to a stronger and more steady and more powerful beat Elsewhere in Matthew, he'll say the kingdom's like a seed. It starts out small, and that's how it starts in us. But man, can it grow. And God, in his grace and his wisdom, says, I want you to be a part of this growth. It's it's not like we're doing it to earn anything. I feel like we get to do it because it's exciting. It's, It's glorious. So he gives us the joy of imitating him. He gives us the joy of of looking to Christ. He gives us the joy of learning to push the idols of our hearts aside so that we can see Jesus more clearly. He engages us in the process. He says, look, you're blessed. This is who you are. 
Now, go out and become who you already are. I want to close just by reading one last time the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you that you sent Jesus to earth to, to make peace, to die on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, I thank you that in Jesus, all these blessings of the kingdom belong to us. They're ours already. And I pray, Lord, for us as a church, for kind of a microcosm of your kingdom, that these qualities, these traits, these ways of acting and being and doing would grow here. That your word would take root in our hearts and that they would begin to beat stronger, they would begin to beat differently, they would begin to, to beat for you more and more. Lord, we do look at the Sermon on the Mount and we say, wow, that's high. Wow, that's too much. Lord, we acknowledge our lack of faith and pray, would you to believe that you really can do this in and through us. That we really can be your people. That we really can walk in newness of life. That we really can usher in your kingdom. Give us hope, Lord. Give us faith. Give us courage, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.